if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed. Seven minutes after the hour of nine o'clock as we get rolling on AM 1420. The answer. Good Tuesday to you. It is the sixth morning of the 10th month of the year of our Lord 2020, and we are loaded for bear today as we kind of have been a lot of days as we push ever closer toward the election, which is, of course, now uh, less than one month away. And uh, we have got it covered for you from stem to stern this morning. Looking forward to conversations at 935 this morning. Uh, we're going to be talking with Michael Anton at 1010. It's Peter Kirsten now at 1048. It's Hogan Gidley. So we are loaded up on uh, political issues and election issues and more. But we're going to start today with the left's freakout that Donald Trump didn't do his job and sufficiently die for their pleasure. Uh, Donald Trump is back. Donald Trump returned to the White House last night being released by Walter Reed Medical Center doctors saying that he is uh, has met all of the requirements to get discharged from that hospital. Remember, they sent him there only uh, out of an abundance of caution in the first place, they said. But uh, he was allowed to return to the White House where he will continue his convalescence. Last night, uh, he was to receive his final dose of uh, remdesivir, of a five-course dose, or five-dose course, rather. And uh, so he went back. And when he got back, he wanted to send a message to the American people, a message that said, I'm good. Thank you for all your prayers. They worked. I'm good. I feel great. And I don't want you to freak out if you get this either, because we can defeat this thing. It was a really, really inspirational message that the left absolutely despised. I just left Walter Reed Medical Center, and it's really something very special. The doctors, the nurses, the first responders, and I learned so much about coronavirus. And one thing that's for certain, don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. You're going to beat it. We have the best medical equipment. We have the best medicines, all developed recently. And you're going to beat it. I went. I didn't feel so good. And two days ago, I could have left two days ago. Two days ago, I felt great, like better than I have in a long time. I said just recently, better than 20 years ago. Don't let it dominate. Don't let it take over your lives. Don't let that happen. We have the greatest country in the world. 
We're going back. We're going back to work. We're going to be out front. As your leader, I had to do that. I knew there's danger to it, but I had to do it. I stood out front. I led. Nobody that's a leader would not do what I did. And I know there's a risk, there's a danger, but that's okay. And now I'm better, and maybe I'm immune. I don't know. But don't let it dominate your lives. Get out there. Be careful. We have the best medicines in the world, and it all happened very shortly, and they're all getting approved, and the vaccines are coming momentarily. Thank you very much. And Walter Reed, what a group of people. Thank you very much. So President Trump yesterday uh, speaking at the White House uh, after returning from Walter Reed Medical Center. Essentially, you heard him, and I think he's talking to two different groups of people here. He's talking to people who, yes, have contracted COVID-19, the Chinese coronavirus, the Wuhan coronavirus. Let's never forget what started all of this. He's talking to them and saying, don't feel like you are not going to make it. Don't be dominated. Don't be uh, afraid of this. If you get it, you're going to be fine in most cases. Because guess what? President Trump's right. 99.5% survival rate. 99.5% recovery rate. And even in the most vulnerable populations... Senior citizens over 70 with comorbidities, they have a 95% recovery rate. So don't let this get you down, the president said. Don't let this defeat you. Don't let this dominate you. You're going to be fine. Chances are extraordinarily high that you're going to be fine. And just like I am, and we're going to come out of this on the other side. But the second group he was speak, uh, of people he was speaking to, in my mind, is all of the rest of us who don't have it, who are healthy and suffering under the lockdowns or the limited lockdowns in most cases now. School still not in session. Church cannot be attended regularly, cannot be attended with the full congregations, cannot sing. Businesses only open to a quarter capacity or a half capacity and only in certain hours. I mean, you know, we're still living in a very, very, very different world and we're still you know being forced in many cases some people anyway i'm not one of them to wear masks everywhere they go um and so i think the president is telling everybody who's healthy as well don't let covid dominate your life i think there was a double meaning there don't let it dominate your life don't let it get you down we are winning and we're going to win are people dying yes and again uh, is that tragic yes Can those numbers be trusted that all of these people died because of COVID-19 and not people who died with COVID-19? I think we've proven time and time again that those numbers cannot be trusted. Did 210,000 people in America die from COVID-19? Absolutely 100% not. Which means technically the survival rate that we're talking about and the recovery rate is probably even higher than what we said. But President Trump choosing to be optimistic rather than defeatist, rather than telling everybody, this is horrible, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy, this is terrible, oh my God, if I survive, it's going to be a miracle from God, this is incredibly painful and difficult. Because he didn't do that, because he took the opposite tone, an optimistic tone, they're outraged. How outraged are they? I don't know. Let's listen to these lunatics. President Trump wrote on Twitter, 
Don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. Almost 210,000 Americans are dead. Speaking of outrageous, uh, this outrageous tweet. Oh, my goodness, Nicole. When I saw that Trump, I mean, I, I literally was overwhelmed. And now we see this tweet, which is heartless. It is uh Cruel, Jake. This is this is so disrespectful. I'm not even sure I can I can speak about this. It's incredibly uh, incredibly disrespectful. What does that mean? Don't be afraid of it. I mean, first of all, it's it's a contagious disease that kills people. It's a contagious disease that kills very 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 low numbers of people that get it. It's a contagious disease that 99.5 percent of the people who who in uh, uh, are infected by it recover from it. That's right. 99.5% of the people who get it recover from it. So the president said, don't be afraid. Be strong. Trust your doctors. He said that. He said, we have great medical care, great doctors, and great medicines and and, uh, treatments that are being developed. That's what it means. Why is this difficult for you to understand, CNN? I think we can summarize the freak out by the mainstream media over President Trump's A, diagnosis with COVID, B, quick trip to Walter Reed for some uh, treatments, C, return to the White House, and D, message of optimism, and don't let this drag you down and don't let this stop our society from functioning. I think we can summarize it this way. The left is angry that Donald Trump didn't die. You heard that correctly. I'll say it again more slowly so you don't think I misspoke because I said what I said. The left is angry that Donald Trump is still vertical, that Donald Trump still stands, that Donald Trump still speaks, that Donald Trump still tweets. You're supposed to be lying on a bed somewhere dying. That's what they were hoping for. That's what many of them openly took to social media to pray for. That's what comedian Chris Rock did on Saturday night when he hosted Saturday Night Live. He opened the show by mentioning that Donald Trump has COVID-19 and he would like to, and I'm not going to play it for you, it doesn't deserve it, but I'll paraphrase it, and he would like to send support to COVID-19, not to Donald Trump, but to COVID-19, hoping he dies. Donald Trump didn't die. Donald Trump feels great. Donald Trump is not out of the woods yet. He's still got to finish all of his medications. But he didn't die, and they're angry about it. And not only did he not die, he specifically is trolling them with his every breath. Not only did he not die... He says he feels better than before. He's literally rubbing their their disgusting, demonic noses in it and telling other people, do not be afraid. Do not let the fear overtake your lives if you are healthy. And if you do contract COVID, understand the medical care that is there and the medical advancements in terms of treatments and medications that are there are phenomenal and you're going to be okay well but 210,000 people died okay 
7 million or more contracted it. Why are we not talking about the 6,800,000 that survived, that recovered? Nobody wants to talk about that. Donald Trump is healthy, and the left is angry about that. Donald Trump is, well, healthy might not be the right word. He's still in the recovery phase, but you understand. Donald Trump is well enough to be released from the hospital, to be discharged by his doctors, to go back to the White House and begin work again. That's the bottom line, and they're not happy about it. They don't want him working. They don't want him walking. They don't want him breathing. They don't want him living, quite frankly. And he's rubbing it in their faces that he feels 20 years younger. President Trump is going to be at the debate on October 15th. It is going to be a town hall-style debate. We'll see if they pack it and stack it with liberal and Trump haters and never Trumpers the way George Stephanopoulos did on ABC. But he's going to be there. It's going to be on October 15th. And he's going to go head-to-head with Joe Biden, much to the dismay of Joe Biden, because Donald Trump lives. 919, wanted you to be a part of the show as well. I told you we got three great guests, Michael Anton, Peter Kirsten, now Hogan Gidley, all coming up on the program this morning. You can be here too at 216-901-0945 on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, 924, we continue on AM 1420, The Answer. So, President Trump is alive and feeling better, and the left is very, very upset about that. I think that much is clear. Uh, What is his opponent up to these days? What is Joe Biden up to now that President Trump is... And by the way, give Biden a small, tiny modicum of credit for during the time when the president was diagnosed and then was hospitalized, uh, obviously very briefly, they pulled their negative ads. They did not want to run the negative ads while he was convalescing. And, you know, of course, his status was maybe up in the air, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so they pulled the negative ads. But now the President Trump is out. It's game on again. And Joe Biden was at a town hall event last night with Lester Holt on NBC. And he was asked a question about abortion. And I found the answer to be absolutely chilling. So um, considering the new Supreme Court nomination of Amy um, Coney Barrett, what are your particular plans to protect women's reproductive rights in the U.S.? Number one, we don't know exactly what she will do, although the expectation is that she may very well move to overview, overrule Roe. And but the only thing, the only responsible response to that would be to pass legislation making Roe the law of the land. Joe Biden plans to codify abortion. He plans to make abortion legal by rule of law, by congressional legislation. Oh, my goodness. To say that this isn't a bit of a game changer is an understatement. The left, many on the left, even though they are pro-abortion, are freaking out over the fact that he may have just chased every pro-lifer who didn't like Donald Trump and was considering voting for Joe Biden because they're concerned about Trump. He may have just chased them all back over to Trump. This is Jenna Ellis, who is a uh, senior legal advisor to the Trump team, tweeted this last night. This is what an autocrat actually looks like. They're calling Trump one. 
Joe Biden claims he won't respect the Constitution, the Supreme Court, or the separation of powers. Remember in the debate when he said, I am the Democratic Party. This is disqualifying. I agree with Jenna Ellis. If you are even remotely a believer in life, if you are a believer uh, you know, uh, in, in every, every, including the weakest and most defenseless among us, having an opportunity to survive, and that would be our unborn children, they're defenseless. They're living, growing in their mother's womb, and then to have something invade and tear them apart, uh, it's unconscionable. And if you are even a remote believer in the pro-life message, it is impossible. It should be impossible. Catholics, if you're a Catholic and you know that pro-life is a core tenet of the church, you simply cannot go behind a curtain or fill out a ballot in any capacity for Joe Biden. He said if Roe versus Wade is somehow overturned by the Supreme Court, He will not respect the Supreme Court, nor the balance of powers. He will just go to the legislature and try to codify it, to make it part of U.S. law, that women are allowed to kill their babies all the way up until uh, those babies are born. And who knows, maybe they'll go a little bit further and go Ralph Northam, Virginia style, and say, and if the baby survives and is actually born, well, we'll just wrap it in a blanket and keep it comfortable for a little while until it dies peacefully, rather than provide immediate life-saving uh, techniques. Simply unconscionable. Uh, Mark is in Fairview. You're on AM 1420, The Answer. Hi, Mark. Go right ahead. Good morning, Bob. You know, I turned on the TV and I saw him in that town hall. And when I tuned in, the thing he was talking about was, uh, well, he, the guy's way off base. And, and, you know, in a smooth way, you know, once again, I saw him denigrating the police. And he's, t- he's talking about how these the police... If he gets in, the police need to be trained in people's cultures and everything. Absolutely ridiculous, you know, because you know what? They are already familiar with the various cultures and that. And uh, they're, they're well-trained and disciplined and everything as far as dealing with criminal culture, you know. But ju- just yeah. hearing that, that nonsense, I just turned it off. I couldn't handle it anymore. But, I, I, you know, you see where the well, guy's got- going already. Yeah, you're right. You do. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. You're right. Of course you can see where he's going, and and it's very, very clear what his message is. He's got nothing else to say. He knows he is caught between a rock and a hard place. If he uh, offers support for law enforcement, he will lose his radical Antifa voters who are out there continuing continuing to burn American cities on a nightly basis. And if he tries to appease the Antifa members of his voting bloc, then he is going to lose the mainstream, uh, you know, the, the more moderate Democrats who don't like all of that stuff. So he says, well, we need police, but we just need to retrain police and to help them understand different cultures. No, the, what they have to understand is the law. That's it, the law. And if the law is being broken, they apply their their uh, uh, training to deal with the breaking of the law. In other words, they make arrests, they issue citations, they do what they have to do, and they do so without passion or prejudice. That's the bottom line. Michael Anton, an author uh, who wrote uh, maybe the most quoted essay of the 2016 campaign season called The Flight 93 Election, uh, is back, and he's going to talk about the extraordinary importance of getting this done before November 3rd. What is this, you may ask, 
It is, of course, the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. He'll join us next to talk about that on AM 1420, The Answer. Progressive Democrats, please be aware you have now entered the place where political correctness goes to die. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, 936, we continue on AM 1420, The Answer. I want to dive right into uh, Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings, which are scheduled to begin six days from today on the 12th of October. But if the left has its way, they're going to try to postpone that indefinitely, of course, until after the election. Kamala Harris says you just cannot do this when it's unsafe for uh, people to uh, come to to work uh, in the Senate. Uh, well, then how about if we just do it virtually? No, no, we can't do it virtually. The same senators, by the way, who said we should have testimony from others virtually in order to keep everybody safe from the coronavirus. They're doing everything they can to push this thing off. Joining us now is somebody who said we can somebody who says we cannot let that happen. Michael Anton um is best known perhaps for an amazing uh uh article back in 2016. The most quoted essay of the 2016 campaign season was the Flight 93 election uh, by Michael Anton. And uh, Michael is also the author of The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. He says we need to have these hearings and we need to get it done fast. He joins us now on AM 1420, The Answer. Michael, thanks so much for the time. How are you? Fine. Actually, I'm, I'm fine to the hearings. I just want to see the judge confirmed. The hearings won't change anybody's mind. Everybody on the Democratic side who's a no is still a no. The hearings are just an attempt or an opportunity for people like Kamala Harris to yell at Hector and harass uh, the judge and to watch the judge you know, deal with these kinds of assaults. We've seen these hearings before. They're just theater. So, okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Senator Harris, uh, on this, perhaps on nothing else. Let's skip the hearings and just go to a floor vote right now, since we know your mind is made up and every other senator's mind is made up. And if we go to the floor vote right now, the Republicans are going to win, and Amy Coney Barrett is going to Amy Coney, sorry, Barrett is going to get confirmed to the Supreme Court. I love that so much better. Totally agree. Let's just skip it all the way. I'll be honest with you. I was I was upset that uh, they uh, scheduled this for so late, as, as far as I'm concerned, as in terms of when the president uh, named her uh, as his nominee, and they scheduled it for October 12th. I said, why not October 1st? I mean, seriously, let's get this going and get it done, uh, because I don't want to have anything happen that could del- delay it even further. And sure enough, four senators have been infected by COVID-19, so now that's the new excuse. Well, it's too unsafe. I'm not going to put my family's health in danger to show up for this confirmation hearing. We have to push it off. You just know they're going to try to find something. Well, you know, again, here's another area of agreement. Any no vote against uh, Judge Barrett, who is too worried about casting the floor vote, I, I, I worry right along with them. If they want to stay home out of concern for their health and not vote, fine with me. I think that's a valid concern, and they should follow through on it and do whatever they think is necessary for their health. Uh, I think that's very well said, because, you know, and this is something that people may or may not realize. Um, you don't need to have all 100 senators present. All you need is the 51 who are going to vote yes, 51 minimum to vote yes to confirm her, and the rest of them can sit at home and wrap themselves in, uh, you know, in bubble wrap and put their feet up on their tables, and it doesn't matter as long as we get the 51 people who are going to say yes. That's all that matters. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I think that... Uh... I'm I'm less worried about COVID-19 than a lot of these senators are. That's assuming they're telling the truth and they're speaking the truth about how worried they really are. But if they are worried, I don't want to force anyone into a situation where they feel uncomfortable or where they feel that their health is in danger. But I don't think that should stop the business of the U.S. Senate. Everybody should make a determination for themselves. 
as to uh, how concerned they are. And if they think that uh, casting a vote is too dangerous, fine, stay away. Yeah, very well said. We're talking with uh, Michael Anton. Uh, the author, he's the author of uh, uh, a number of uh, fantastic editorials, but it's, he, excuse me, he is the author of a book, um, The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. Can you tell me what the point of no return really is, Michael? Uh, I, because I, I, can, I feel like we can name six or seven things just right off the top um, that put us at, at that place, whether it's foreign policy and whether it's the looming threat of China, which I don't know if everybody is really, truly understanding that we are kind of at a China moment that President Reagan was um, with uh, the evil empire of the Soviet Union at a, at a similar time in, in 19, uh, the early 1980s. What exactly do you see as the point of no return? Well, I'm, I'm much less worried about China or any foreign country, although China is a, a, a serious concern, than I'm worried about things going on domestically. To me, the point of no return is when domestically our government stops operating as a constitutional democracy, which I think it actually has stopped operating as quite a while ago. But it is at least still superficially democratic. We still have elections. The election of 2016 proved that an election outcome can be not what the ruling class wants it to be. Um, they spent a year and a half from Donald Trump's escalator ride, fame, you know, famous escalator ride, just kick off his campaign in the summer of 2015 until his election, shouting, I mean, just blaring at intense high decibels in the American people's ears that this is a bad man who is illegitimate and cannot be president. And they elected him anyway, which shows that the people are still willing to essentially defy the edicts of the ruling class. The ruling class cannot have that. What they want is the theater of elections, the show of elections, but none of the consequences of elections. They want elections to happen, to take place, but to be meaningless, to always elect the kind of person that they want. And I think if we get that in 2020 is ultimately, I think, the final test. If they can elect a person, Joe Biden, who really is, I'm sorry, he's not up to the presidency anymore. He's not the same man he was four years ago, eight years ago, 16 years ago, and essentially control him and make him do whatever they want and, and even replace him at some point, which I think is part of the plan. If they can do that, then we will have passed the point of no return where elections don't have consequences anymore. We are not governed in any way by the Constitution or the laws of the United States, and we're not in any way a democracy. We're just formally an oligarchy ruled essentially from the blue coasts. Everything you just said uh, about Joe Biden, I think most people would agree with. He is not what he was. He is not as sharp cognitively. There is a decline. There's no question about that. And yet, because of the president's uh, you know, performance during the debate, perhaps, that was part of it. Uh, then, of course, what just happened with his uh, COVID hospitalization and his quick return to the White House, the numbers have gone, in, at least in some of the polls, crazy. Uh, Joe Biden plus 14 won today. I think it's NBC, Wall Street Journal is Biden plus 15 um, what is it that, you know, what is America seeing here that, uh, that you and I are not well, seeing? Well, I, I think those, I mean, I will find out, but I think those polls are lies. I think the media just puts out polls to, uh, for propaganda purposes. And I think there's two basic purposes. One is that they want to depress Republican turnout. They want to demoralize Republicans and say, oh, your guy is getting thumped. There's no point in going to vote. It's a guaranteed loss. The other thing, too, is if and when Trump actually wins, they want to be able to push the voter suppression narrative by saying Trump must have cheated somehow because the polls were showing this huge Biden win, and now it looks like Trump won. So how could that happen, absent Trump cheating? So, look, the media proved in 2016 
that they don't even care about their own reputation for accuracy. They will put out absolutely false polls that do not bear out, that are not borne out by events. And when that happens, you know, and people say, gee, your polling was atrociously inaccurate and bad, they're not even embarrassed. They're openly propaganda instruments now. They're not polling for accuracy. They're not trying to show you an accurate picture of what's going on. They're doing it to um, change the results, to affect the results. Now, you know, if Biden wins by 15 and I'm proved wrong, fine, I'll, I'll admit it. But when they're, if Biden doesn't win by 15 and they're proved wrong, they won't admit it. They'll just move on like nothing happened and keep pumping propaganda at us. This is what they are. They are not truth-tellers. They're not reporters. They're not interested in accuracy. They are part of the ruling class. They are part of the regime. Their job is to push a narrative, to propagandize people into believing what they want you to believe so that you go along with their agenda. They're liars. Michael Anton. Just liars. Very well said. No, you're right. Uh, Michael Anton is our guest. He's a former national security official in the Trump administration, also a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. I'm going to save one of your titles for the end of our interview for private reason, or personal reason, rather. Michael, I'm going to go back to the point of no return. One thing we did not see in 2016 uh, was rioting uh, in the streets in multiple American cities for six consecutive months, or seven, I guess, by the time we get to the election. And that is what we are seeing now. So when we talk about the point of no return, I kind of fear that that is going to be it. We are already seeing the type of violence that we have not seen on this much of a sustained basis, maybe ever. And if there is a, you know, a dramatic Trump victory, especially if it's one that on, at least, you know, in the actual in-person voting in which they call states on November 3rd, if we see a relatively resounding Trump victory after all of the, the, the violence we've seen and then the polls that you're talking about, I can see America literally just, uh, you know, ablaze. Um, it, that's what I fear, fear might be the point of no return is just that the left will not accept the outcome. Well, I think you're right. The left won't accept the outcome. Um, but this could go one of two ways. Uh, you know, that there's been some speculation that, oh, if Trump wins, um, you know, maybe California and Washington and Oregon will secede from the union or threaten to. I've, I've heard liberals say that. Uh, and they say it ominously, like, like it is a threat, like, well, we'll go and then that'll force the, that will force red America and Trump supporters to back down. I'm from California originally, and my ancestors have been in California since they came to the United States in the 19th century. So I'm as Californian as they get. And when I hear that, I laugh. And I can imagine Ohio uh, and Michigan and uh, Kansas and these other states in the middle of the country saying, really? You know, are they gonna, do you think they're going to get on their knees and beg California to stay in the union? I don't think so, which is why I think it's an empty threat. Um, uh, well, of course, it's an empty it, threat. We we, they, we can't even get California celebrities who promise to move to Canada if George Bush wins or if Donald Trump wins to follow through on it. They won't even leave individually, let alone as a state. Yeah, the 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 to me the bigger threat is a Biden victory, which just means California politics from coast to coast. It means blue state un, um, unopposed Democratic rule from coast to coast, turning the entire country into California or New York. That's the bigger threat. That's what I mean by the point of no return. I think a Trump victory avoids the point of no return for for a while, for four years. We'll see where uh, where it can go after that, if the Republican Party can reform itself and build a, a national majority dedicated to rebalancing the economy, rebalancing our society, and actually doing things for heartland America, which is something that pretty obviously the Blue Coast don't care about. I mean, the Blue Coast care about tech and finance and Hollywood and, you know, the media and, you know, a handful of knowledge 
industries, so-called knowledge industries, or in the information economy, however you want to term it, and they just hold in complete contempt the rest of the country. They don't even seem to be curious about where their food comes from and where their energy, actually about energy, they're, they're absolutely hostile. You know, the Blue Coast consume tons of energy, and then they hate the people who drill for it, dig for it, and generate it, and they hate those industries, and they think, well, we can do this all with solar. Well, okay. I mean, I, that's, again, I, ultimately, I try to be live and let live. I want people to have what they want. So if California wants to secede from the union and run a state that large with 40 million people, it's probably much higher than that, but that's the official number, completely off of solar panels without any recourse to coal, natural gas, or other forms of energy, fine. Let them try it. I think it's great. It's a wonderful experiment. I wish them well. I just don't want to be involved in it. Michael Anton is our guest on AM 1420, The Answer. Michael, my last question I wanted to save as well as one of your titles, and that title is Lecturer and Research Fellow at Hillsdale College. And the reason I said I wanted to save that for a personal reason is my daughter was in the audience. She's a sophomore at Hillsdale, and she saw your debate against Robert Kagan. She was blown away. She was very, very impressed. Your debate was uh, America First Policy versus Liberal World Order. Uh, I wanted to see if you can give us a thumbnail sketch of your argument on behalf of America First, which, again, uh, really moved my daughter. Well, I'm just, you know, we were maybe some of us expecting more fireworks because Kagan is a pretty um, forceful spokesman for this idea of a fairly expansive notion of what American interests are. Basically, he thinks the whole world is in the American spirit of influence and we have to maintain order everywhere. And I tried to make the case that what he calls the liberal world order, the liberal international order, was a thing that the American statesmen and, and Western Europeans built after World War II that was particular to its time, and that maybe has outlived its time in certain respects, and that we've also tried to push it past the borders where it really works. So a kind of rule-based order works in the settled democracies of Western Europe and, and in the uh, democracies of Northeast Asia that emerged after World War II, but it maybe doesn't work everywhere. And also there are parts of the world where America's interest is negligible, if it exists at all. And we became, especially at the end of the Cold War, um, insistent as a country or as a foreign policy elite at a, at a minimum, we became insistent on uh, trying to kind of force our way into every part of the world and, and, and make every part of the world govern itself the way we wanted it to in ways that were uh, against the inclinations of lots of lots of different countries and peoples. And we spent serious amounts of blood and treasure over the last 20 years trying to impose this vision. And we didn't achieve it anywhere, and we didn't really make the world better, and we cost ourselves a lot. And so I think the Donald Trump foreign policy, which, you know, is um, casually insulted as isolationist, is not isolationist, but it is. it does amount to a necessary retrenchment and scaling back, because we, we ended up trying not merely to do too much with our foreign policy, although that was a problem, but we also tried to do things that can't be done. So even if a thing is in your interest and you think, wow, this is a wonderful opportunity and we must do X in order to protect ourselves, if we don't know how to do X, like, for instance, democratize Iraq and Afghanistan, if we don't know how and if we don't have the capability, then trying to do that thing is foolish and will cost you, even if it's in your interest. 
You know, 30-second follow-up to that. It's funny uh, that, that everything you just said is, is very accurate, particularly as it pertains to the Trump doctrine. And yet, despite being quote-unquote isolationist, according to critics, America first, according to supporters, the president still managed to garner three, not one nor two, but three Nobel Peace Prize nominations. So that doctrine of, of doing what you can do and not trying to do what you cannot do simply works. Yes, I mean... Uh I mean, he, I think he won't get that peace prize because the, the committee is, is run by globalist leftists who hate him. But he deserves it. He's the first president in a generation not to have started a new war and, in fact, to have, um, if not completely ended our involvement in a lot of conflicts, he certainly scaled them back. Uh, and then, you know, uh, with the one exception, which he promised in his campaign, he said he would, he would knock the hell out of ISIS over his exact words. And he did that. And he did it through a proxy force. Really, American forces were there as advisors and helpers, but not tip of the spear. They were not actually firing the shot. What we did uh, in 2017, largely, was enable uh, a, a native Syrian Arab Kurdish force on the ground to beat ISIS. As soon as that, as that victory was accomplished, the president immediately started scaling back uh, our forces in the Middle East. Uh, he's, and he's the first president to have done so um, yeah. in, in a generation. I mean, you could say, oh, oh yes, Obama pulled us out of Iraq. I think, I think uh, uh, foolishly and unwisely the way he did it in the timing. But he, he vastly ramped up our presence in Afghanistan, Africa, and in a lot of other places. So, yeah. yeah, if there was any justice in the world, I mean, look at Jimmy Carter got a Nobel Peace Prize for what? Uh, for uh, allegedly for North Korea, President Trump has done more for peace on the Korean Peninsula than anybody. Abroad, I was going to say, when's the last time we saw a Kim Jong Un missile test? Yeah, Michael, when's the last time yeah. we saw a Kim Jong Un missile test? They were weekly during the Obama administration. That has ended during the Trump administration. That alone, Michael Anton, tremendous conversation. Uh, thank you so much for the great analysis. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Michael Anton, lecturer and research fellow at Hillsdale College, also a former national security official in the Trump administration. We'll be right back. Thank you to my guest, Michael Anton. Got us rolling in the last half hour. Coming up in the next half hour, we are going to have Peter Kersenow. Peter, of course, a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. We have a lot to talk uh, to Pete about. And then at 1048 next hour, we're going to talk with Hogan Gidley, um, who is the uh, press secretary for the Trump-Pence 2020 campaign, for, campaign, former press secretary for the Trump administration. Uh, let me squeeze a call in here. Jerry in Brexville got in just at the right time. Jerry, you're on the air. Go right ahead. Yes, Bob. I just was wondering if you read the article on the plane deer by Ted Diedema, whoever his name is. And it says uh, yeah, Ted Dieden, yeah. But yeah, it says with all his bully and bluster, we're still better off with Trump. Now he says your vote you should vote for what he's done, not if, even if you hate the man. What he has done is better than anything Biden can come up with. And uh it's a very good article. I did I, I did read that. And I, I'd like to go, have go, go ahead, Jerry. We're having a. I apologize for talking over each other here. We've got a delay between your phone and the and the signal. So go ahead and finish your thought there, and then I'll wrap it up. Well, I, I was just saying. I hope everybody in Cleveland read that article and takes it to heart. I've been telling my friends and my relatives and everybody the same thing for months that uh, what Trump has done is there's no equal to it. 
And one other thing, on this uh, debate with uh, Pence and Harris, I hope Pence brings up what she said during their nomination and, uh, and also how bad she disliked Trump. And, what, and, what specifically and, uh, did no, she uh, say? Um, what, what, what specifically well, the, do you want Pence to bring up? Well, uh, that, uh, that uh, I didn't mean Trump. I meant Biden when, in the nomination when she said Biden was uh, uh, too liberal or, and that kind of. I can't remember what all she said, but it was quite a bit. Okay. Okay, I got you. Yeah, she she was, and thank you for the call. I appreciate it, Jerry. Yeah, she was. Uh, she went after Biden very hard in their primaries, uh, no doubt about that. And it is interesting. She set aside all of that now in order to support him as his number two, and eventually she expects to be the number one on this ticket uh, before the first term is out if they get elected. So I appreciate that. We're going to talk to Peter Kirsten now next right here on AM 1420, The Answer.